Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We are continuing a series of lessons this morning from the book of Revelation. And if you've been here for these lessons, you know that our goal has not been and is not to try to unpack everything found in that entire book. But instead, there are at least seven times in the book of Revelation, we're looking at seven anyway, where the text itself tells us to behold something. And this is the fifth of those seven lessons. This will be the third time, it will also be the last time, but the third time where the book of Revelation has told us to behold something about Jesus Christ. It is fitting that three times in the book of Revelation, you have something where the text tells us to behold something about him because he easily is the one at center stage throughout the book of Revelation, that final book of the Bible. But as we come to our text this morning, which is found in Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be drawing ever closer, of course, to the end of Revelation, to the end of the Bible, but also to a section of scripture that for many of you is one of your favorites. In fact, the last two lessons in this series, Lord willing, the next two weeks, will discuss heaven and judgment. Oh, how wonderful those thoughts will be. But in reality, as the book of Revelation begins to draw to a close, that context begins even before our scripture reading that we read a few moments ago this morning. If you want to turn back in your Bible to Revelation chapter 18, we're not going to read all these verses, but I want to set the stage for where we are going this morning. Back in Revelation chapter 18, we're not going to unpack everything, But chapter 18 begins by recording for us the fall of what is called in verse 2, Babylon the Great. Many scholars believe that is the Roman Empire or the city of Rome. Others suggest maybe it's Jerusalem. There are different views, but whoever it is, and I believe it's Rome, but whoever it is, it is the fall of something great. But the key is not necessarily who it is or what it is. But I want you to notice the fact that in the economy of God, if you look down in verse 10, of Revelation chapter 18, it tells us that that happened in the span of or the space of a single hour. So whoever or whatever is fallen here, to God it did not take very long. When he decided to act, it was done. But with that as the background that this world empire, this world power has fallen, it sets the stage for the beginning of Revelation chapter 19, a section that begins the first 10 verses with words of praise. In fact, if you mark in your Bible, this is a beautiful section to to mark because seven times in the opening ten verses of Revelation chapter 19, you have words of praise. I put them on the screens before you. Verse 1 uses the word hallelujah. You find that same word again in verse 3 and in verse 4. 
In verse 5, you have the phrase, praise our God. The word praise there is a word that means we exalt. It literally means we recommend to you our God. Verse 6, you have again the word hallelujah. Verse 7, you have the phrase, give him the glory. And then down in verse 10, as that opening paragraph closes to Revelation chapter 19, you have the very simple phrase, worship God. The word worship there, proskuneo, means to kiss toward. It's as if you get down on your knees and, and kiss toward God in a reverent way. Praise to Him. But here's what's amazing. As awe-inspiring as that is, that seven times in ten verses you have words of praise or hallelujah or give Him the glory, that's only setting the stage. It's only setting the stage. Because if you notice in the first ten verses, you don't have the word behold. It's with this idea of worshiping God at the background that we come to our text. But before we get there, did you notice the emphasis is on worshiping God? In fact, all that John has seen in Revelation chapter 18 and these first ten verses of chapter 19 is so overwhelming that John actually falls down to worship the angel that brought the message to him and brought this vision to him. And the angel tells him, don't worship me. Now, I'm just created like you are. Worship God. But again, that's setting the stage. Because if you look in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, you're going to see our word. Then I saw heaven open, and here it is, behold, a white horse. But for the next several verses, John's attention moves from the white horse itself to the one who is on that horse. The one seated on it. And what follows in the next several verses that we read together a few moments ago is one of the most glorious descriptions of Jesus found anywhere in all the Bible. In fact, the way we have it numbered For the next several verses, there are seven descriptions of Jesus in this text. And so we're calling our lesson this morning, Behold, Jesus is Amazing. I've actually presented some of this material to you before, several years ago. But I want to come back to it in this series of lessons. To to introduce it a different way, to preach some different things in it, but also to conclude a different way. But I want us to think this morning about the fact that Jesus is amazing. But he's amazing because of how Revelation chapter 19 describes him. There are seven ways in our text. Don't worry, we'll only spend about three minutes on each one. But we are going to have seven points to our lesson this morning. Number one, Jesus is amazing because Jesus is faithful and true. And here that's meant to be maybe a name, maybe a nickname. But notice that the rider on the white horse is called faithful and true. Earlier, in the very same book, the book of Revelation, that same description or a very similar description had already been used of Christ. And so that statement that he is faithful and true, in many ways, bookend his power and his promises found throughout the book of Revelation. All the way back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the the, the greeting opens the book and it says it had been sent from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... But then in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, in that letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. But here's the point of why he's called that now near the end of the book. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, and Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus is described as faithful and true. 
But by the time you come to Revelation chapter 19, Jesus has proven himself to be faithful and true. You see, it's one thing to make such a claim. It's another thing for it to be true. That's why I went back in Revelation chapter 18 a moment ago to introduce this section a little bit. Because that world power, again, I believe it's Rome, but whoever it is, this world power is conquered. And Jesus is the one who comes riding in on the white horse. He's the conquering one. And so he was described as faithful and true early in the book. And now as the book is drawing to a close, he has proven that statement to be absolutely 100% accurate. We need that reminder today. We live in a world where sometimes we just wonder if everything is falling apart And we may even wonder at times if God will do anything. And at times, some may struggle to wonder if God can do anything. But we need to understand that we're on God's timetable, not ours. And the Lord is is still in control. The Lord will act when He deems necessary and appropriate and right. And even if we never see that in our own lifetime, Jesus, our God, is faithful and true. His word is always right. He is always true. And I need to ask, am I on his side? If he is the one who is this conquering hero, not only is he just a conquering hero, he's a conquering hero who's faithful and who is true. Don't you want to be on his side? He's amazing. But he's also amazing in the second place because Jesus is visionary. We love leaders who are visionary. Now, sometimes leaders are responsible for for counting the cost and getting down all the details and thinking about all the, the reasons why maybe something can't be done or why we have to wait to do something. And that's fine. That's necessary. But we also have a special respect, do we not, for those who are able just to look out beyond. And while we may not be able to do something right now or do this this very moment, they're thinking big picture. They're visionary. And we respect them for that. They understand something that, that inspires us and motivates us to do grander and, and greater things. And so you see in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12 that Jesus is described as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, again, that description has already been used in the book of Revelation all the way back in chapter one and verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Chapter two, verse 18 describes him there as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. So that text or that excuse me, that description has already been used. But what you have here, when you have this picture of eyes being like a flame of fire, is that Jesus sees everything. His power is in the fact that he can see and know everything. It's a description of his omniscience. He knows all. He sees all. By the way, tie that back to our first point. That Jesus is faithful and true. And that implies there's going to be some decisions to make at times. Don't you want one who's making those decisions to have seen all and to know all. And that helps us to understand how we can rest assured that what is right will be done in judgment. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we're told that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't you want to judge who has seen all and who knows all? Don't you want to judge who's able to, to not miss any evidence? But to hold to all that is true and right. And somebody might say, well, I'm not sure I want that. I, I'm not sure I want him to know everything I'm doing. Well, that says more about you than it does about him. Because if we're faithful, don't you want him to see what you're doing? And put this back in the time when this revelation was given, this vision was given. In John's day, these Christians were suffering immensely. 
If you read the early chapters, those letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, you know that. And that's referenced throughout the book in various ways and in sometimes difficult ways and visions and things. But we know they're suffering. If you were a Christian that day and time, wouldn't you want to know that your leader sees what you're doing? That you're just trying. That you're just trying to do what's right. In spite of the fact that the world really doesn't care that you're trying to do what's right. And at times even tries to put you down for doing what's right. Most of us will probably never suffer to that way, to that level anyway, as far as our faith goes. But don't you put your head on the pillow at night sometimes and just wonder, did God really see what I did today? Not in an arrogant way, not in a way that says I'm trying to earn my way to heaven, but because nobody else really saw. Jesus sees. Jesus is visionary. He sees the big picture. He knows when you are being faithful and true. He's amazing. But he's also amazing in the third place because he is ultra victorious. Now that may seem like overkill to, to say ultra victorious, but it's what's stressed in the middle of verse 12. The rider on the white, right, <laughs> the white horse, we are told, has many diadems on his head. In the book of Revelation, there are two words used to describe crowns that people wore. One of them was was the word Stephanos. That was the, the crown of victory. The ones who ran the race. You might think of the laurel wreaths. You see sometimes you think about Olympics. The ones who ran a race and they, they overcame. And in Revelation, by the way, Jesus is pictured another time wearing that kind of crown. Back in chapter 14 and verse 14, the text there tells us he was wearing a golden crown on his head. Literally a golden Stephanos. He, he had run the race and he had won. That's not the word here. Some translations here in Revelation 19 just use the word crowns. The English Standard Version others actually translate it for us and give us the word diadems. What's the difference? This is not the, the crown of the one who runs the race and wins. A diadem is the crown of the one who wins the victory, wins the war. It's the ruling crown. And when the text tells us that he has many diadems, what's it say? It's saying he defeats all enemies. There's no one that can overcome him. It's still true in certain parts of the world, (coughs) excuse me, but it was especially true in, in ancient times, especially ancient monarchies, that Often the king or the queen would either have multiple crowns that they would wear because they'd wear the crown of their own nation that they were sovereign over for a while. And then they might change to a crown of a nation they had conquered. Or sometimes they would take parts of those crowns of nations they had conquered and meld them into one huge crown or at least take the stones and precious metals off of another crown and put it somewhere on their crown. That's the idea behind the rider on the white horse. Every time, it's as if he can change crowns constantly because he has defeated all. That's why we use the word he is ultra victorious. He is amazing because there is no one who can overcome him. In the end, Jesus will be victorious, not just over, if you please, a Christian nation or a Christian people. In the end, Jesus will prove himself to be victorious over all things. We know it's already true, but in the end, it will be proven true. Number four, he is amazing very simply because Jesus is wonderful. I like the description given of him at the end of verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
Now, you may be reading from a translation that says he has a name written on himself or on him. That phrase on him is not in the original language, but it's written somewhere. What's interesting to me, you can go to some commentaries and, of course, you can go to websites because everything on the Internet is true. But you can you can go to some websites and, and commentaries that try to figure out what this name is that's written on him. Does anybody see a problem with that? When the text itself says, no one knows. We don't know what this name is or this description is that's written on or near Jesus in this picture. So what's the concept? The concept behind this name is not for us to try to figure out what it is. The concept is to remind us that there are certain things that are so wonderful and so lofty about Jesus the Christ that we will never fully understand them. It reminds us of what's said of God the Father in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 28 where Moses said the secret things belong to God. J.W. Roberts writes about this picture of the secret nature of the name. He says, it is the ultimate mystery of Jesus' being and nature. Now that may or may not be exactly true, but it gets to the point. That there are certain things about Christ, as wonderful and as amazing as He is, that we cannot fully comprehend. And, and I chose to use the word wonderful here, because consider this for a moment. Jesus is the member of the Godhead who came to this earth. He's the one that we can most relate to because we read things like and in John and other accounts of the gospel that he was hungry, that he was thirsty, that he dealt with desertion, that he dealt with all of these things. He can fully understand us and we can relate so much to him. But we can't understand all about him because he's too wonderful. He's too wonderful. Jesus is amazing. Number five. He is amazing because he is the overcoming one. Verse 13 begins with a very interesting phrase. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, when you come to that picture of blood and the clothing being dipped in it, there are three different ways to interpret that part of the picture. Any of the three are possible. One seems to make the most sense. One is that the blood itself is the blood of suffering Christians. And certainly that's a possibility, given that throughout the book of Revelation, that picture of Christians even dying for their faith has been used. And we know that was happening at the time when Revelation was written. But it doesn't seem to fit the picture here of Jesus being a conquering hero. A second possibility is that it's Jesus' own blood. We've seen that in our series of lessons, have we not? All the way back when you have that throne room scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and Jesus appears on the scene as a lamb there who was slain. But now it's standing and you have a picture of blood that runs throughout that book. But again, that doesn't seem to fit here with, with a conquering hero idea. Instead, it seems to me that the blood, as odd as this may sound to us, is the blood of the conquered enemies of Jesus. And it ties to a concept you have all the way back in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63 in verse 2. Excuse me, this question is asked in prophecy. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And then the answer is given in the next two verses. Isaiah 63 verses 3 and 4. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered or splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. 
For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think of that picture of Christ all that often. But there it is in prophecy in the Old Testament. And I believe here it is in the book of Revelation. Not that Jesus fights a literal, physical war, but that Jesus so overcomes his his enemies that it's as if his clothing is stained with their blood and he comes home as the conquering hero from those victories. Sometimes, again, we can be frightened by what's going on in the world around us. We can be frightened because we think that the ways of evil and the ways of Satan have the upper hand and they're going to win. But folks, the whole point of the book of Revelation is very simple. In the end, Jesus wins. That's the whole point. He is ultimately victorious. He is the overcoming one. He defeats all the enemies. He is amazing. Number six, he is amazing because Jesus is the word of God. The human author of Revelation, of course, is John. He's the one who wrote down this vision. But that's interesting because it's John who began his account of the gospel by describing Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And now that same concept is brought all the way forward to this vision in Revelation chapter 19. Because at the end of verse 13, the writer's name is given. The Word of God. And if you look down a couple of more verses, in verse 15, we're told that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Since that sword is coming from his mouth, and since this is all uh, vision anyway, we know it's not a literal sword. But the idea of it being a sword and coming from the mouth, it certainly brings to mind another passage of Scripture, does it not? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. If that is true, that Jesus is the Word, the Word of God, if this Word that comes from His mouth is the Word of God, all that's rolled together in Him, then what the vision is trying to get us to see is that when Jesus speaks, He speaks with all authority. Is that not what He Himself said? Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus speaks, it is the word of God. It's not Christ's word versus God's word. When Jesus speaks, it is God's word. And so every time Jesus speaks, we see his words in scripture. We need to take them as our authority. When he says that one must believe and be baptized in order to be saved, someone can argue against that all day long. But they're not arguing against us, folks. They're arguing against Jesus, who is the Word of God. When Jesus gives a commandment to to go and make disciples of all nations, someone can argue against that and push against that all they want. But they're not arguing against us. They're arguing against Christ, who is the Word of God. Even when Jesus said in this very same book that we must be faithful unto death. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. Someone can say, well, I believe in once saved, always saved. You can believe that if you want. But you're arguing against Christ, the Word of God. You're not arguing against just some religious tradition. And we could go on and on. But we need to notice that Jesus' words are the words of God and that He Himself said that what will judge us in or on the last day are His words. John chapter 12 and verse 48. He is amazing. Because he is the word of God. And number seven, he is amazing because he is king of kings and lord of lords. 
Before you notice the description found in verse 17, notice the text tells us where it is written on his robe and on his thigh. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but consider again in this vision that Jesus is riding on a horse. And so if something is written on his robe and on his thigh and he's riding on a horse, you can't miss it. When he goes riding by or coming near, you're going to see this description. And the description is that he is king of kings and lord of lords. In reality, it's more than that. In reality, what is being said here is he is God. Because already in scripture, more than one time, you have the phrases king of kings and or lord of lords used to describe God the Father. For example, Moses told Israel, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. Even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar had said of Daniel's God that he was a God of gods and a Lord of lords. Daniel 2.47. In the New Testament, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15 that God is, and here's the same phrase, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now, through this overcoming victory, Jesus is given the same name, or if you please, the same description. He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 verse 1 again. Now that had been promised just a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, we're told that those who are with Christ, they will make, excuse me, those who are against Christ, they will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer Him. Why? For, because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But now when you come to Revelation chapter 19, that has been done. Chapter 18, remember, Babylon has fallen. And it's fallen in an hour of, of God's economy. It's as if no time passed. And so you come to Revelation 19 and Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every king, every queen, every legislator, every chancellor, every president, every judge, everyone who is in a position of authority may think at times that they have it all under their control. But they must understand that no matter how much power they may have, Jesus is Lord of all because he's God. Back in the early 1800s, Percy Shelley decided to write a poem. In fact, several poets were asked to write a write something to honor the fact that some uh, artifacts have been uncovered in Egypt and that the British Museum was going to have some of those. And he and a friend of his decided to have a little contest. They decided to write a poem by the same name, uh, Oximenides, which I can barely pronounce, but it was the Greek name for Ramses the Pharaoh, and basically see which one was better. Percy Shelley won. I know that because I've never heard of the other guy or his poem my entire life. But his poem is very interesting. He said, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Oximandius, King of Kings. Look at my works, ye mighty in despair. 
Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What was Shelley trying to say? He was basically saying, here was someone who erected a statue in his image, or the nation erected a statue in his image that said, this is, in our words, Ramses, the king of kings. And now the rubble from his empire is being carried to a museum centuries later. We sometimes sing a song. We don't sing as often as we used to, but one of my favorite lines we ever sing is, kingdoms wax and wane, yet the church of Jesus faithful will remain. Is that not what you saw back in Daniel chapter 2? That Nebuchadnezzar's empire was the empire of gold. It was fabulous. And what did Daniel look at him and say? An empire even less impressive than yours is going to defeat you. And then there'll be another one, and then there'll be another one. And now we're living 2,000 years beyond that fourth empire, the Roman Empire. And if you look back through world history, we've seen all kinds of empires and nations rise and fall. Even in our own lifetimes, we've seen nation, the, the map change because empires or nations rise and fall or wax and wane, as Almer Christian soldiers puts it. But what is the point of what John is trying to get us to see? That Jesus is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. His kingdom does not wax or wane, to use that older language. His kingdom is. Because He's God. And so it is right for us, when we think about those seven descriptions, and others we could think of throughout Scripture, as we did a moment ago, to sing the words, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Because he is absolutely amazing. But before we close, I want to point to one other thing to help us extend the Lord's invitation this morning. As amazing as those descriptions are, in fact, they may be overwhelming to us if we really let them cross into our mind. Jesus is the overcoming one. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God. He is amazing. But as amazing as he is, he is not some unapproachable leader who does not care about you or about me. As amazing as he is, Hebrews 4.15 continues to be true. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Turn that to the way we might word it. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Yes, Jesus is amazing. And yes, there are things we saw in that picture that we cannot and will not ever really fully comprehend about him. But he knows you. And he cares for you. And whatever you may think of those other seven descriptions, if you may think those are too lofty, too grand, too amazing, too hard to figure out. I want to suggest to all of us. The fact that if he is the same one who is the overcoming one. And yet he condescends to care about me. Then that makes him amazing. And that makes him worthy. Of all of my life. All of my heart. All of my soul. He is worthy. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder 
how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Have you ever considered the fact the rest of that song is basically three words? Yet he did. And he did it for you. This morning, if you need to come to him, the one who is amazing, the one in whose presence we need to stand in awe, but the one who came and stretched his arms out so that you could kneel with the cross before him. If you need to come to him to be baptized for the remission of your sins, if you need to return to him as a Christian who's been unfaithful or needs encouragement, he loves you enough to forgive and to bring you into the fold. If you'll come, while we stand and sing to encourage you.